Welcome to the Online Bodyguard Podcast with host Philip Rendell, CEO and founder of Diffuse, a global threat and intelligence consultancy that blends psychology and intelligence to mitigate threats and risks to prominent people and brands. Welcome everyone to the uh, the first episode of the uh, the Online Bodyguard Podcast, and I'm delighted that um, uh, on this particular episode, our first one, my very special guest is my friend and uh, business partner, uh, Dr. Lorraine Sheridan. Hi, Lorraine. Hello, Phil. So here we are then, our very first podcast. And uh, who better to have than you? Uh, not just because you're a partner in the business of Diffuse, but because you are hugely qualified uh, with massive experience to go with it. So just for those that don't know you, can you kind of just give us a quick resume of of who you are and what you've what your expertise is? I am Lorraine. I have spent the last, whoa, 25 years researching stalking. Apparently, I am a leading global expert in stalking, harassment, threat assessment, and similar things. I was until recently president of the Asia Pacific Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. I've been a profiler for the UK police and other police forces. I've been an academic and I've produced loads and loads and loads of research and various books on things like stalking, suicide in prisons, all different forms of violence, sexual offending. And I have run courses in forensic psychology, undergraduate and postgraduate. So I am all things forensic psychology. Oh, and I'm a chartered forensic psychologist as well. Wow. That'll do for now. Wow. That'll do. So I guess the, the, the question that comes to mind is, what first kind of interested you about stalking? Long, 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 long ago... I was working for the National Health Service in England. I left school at 16 and I didn't really have any qualifications at all. So I got an entry level job and I was made redundant when I was about, oh, I don't know, about 22, 23. And I thought, what am I going to do with my life? You know, I've always had these kind of really basic jobs and I always wanted to go to university. So I chanced it and I did it. And then in my very, very final year, I realized I was doing quite well. And I saw this thing called stalking on the telly. You're talking 1997, which is when the United Kingdom had its very, very first anti-stalking law. So stalking was big on the telly. And because I was in the last year of my degree, I looked up, you know, in the libraries and things, stalking, what is it? I'm really intrigued by it. I want to know all about it. There was nothing there. So I thought, right. I'm going to do something about this. Nobody knows anything about this in Europe. A little bit in the US, nothing in Europe. This is my thing. And then I decided to do a PhD on it. So I did my final year project for my degree and then a PhD. And as a kid from a council estate in Leicester, I never actually thought I'd do a PhD, but I did. And then I thought, you know, one of these days I'll move on to something else. And I did branch out into other bits of forensic psychology, but I've always stuck with stalking. So, yeah, 25 years now. So when you did your PhD, what, what was the thesis about? What I wanted to do was to really kind of map out the course and nature of stalking, because I noticed really early on that a big reason that other people hadn't researched it is because it's really tricky to define. You know, because ultimately, when you think about it, it's lots of kind of often everyday behaviours. And it's only when you group them together, like recognise a course of conduct 
that you sometimes realize that you've got a problem. Yeah, some stalkers can be really dangerous, but they often begin in little dribs and drabs. You know, like that old analogy of the frog in the boiling water. You know, that if you kind of put a frog in boiling water, he'll jump out. Uh, But alternatively, if you heat him up slowly, you know, degree by degree, he won't jump out. And stalking's like that. It has this difficult quality for people to pin down. And so what I wanted to do was really get an idea of what is it and what do people think it is? And what are we going to do about it? So that was my PhD, laying all the groundwork for that. Incidentally, the frog thing isn't true. It's just an analogy. But that fact about frogs isn't actually true. I'll so take, there you I'll go. Take your Education for, for you, Phil. So, okay. So how, how do you define stalking then? I go with um, Pathé and Mullen, Australian psychiatrists. They come out with what I think is the best definition about 20 years ago and they talk about it being a constellation of behaviors so a whole different range of behaviors you know like all the stars in the sky loads of different behaviors endless ones where one person targets another one and basically upsets them so okay so what's the difference then between stalking and harassment well that's a really tricky one because people often use the terms interchangeably but technically really stalking is a form of harassment say you've got this kind of big umbrella behavior harassment and underneath it fall all different kinds of things you know sexual harassment bullying can be a form of harassment and stalking tends to be considered as a particularly severe targeted repetitive form of harassment so when you've got sexual harassment you know that's normally got a really particular sexual focus right And when you've got bullying, people are normally picking on some particular attribute of the target or the victim. But when it's stalking, it's this persistent, never give up, all consuming, all embracing, extreme bother, for want of a better word. So when so when then does harassment become stalking then? Ah, that's the magic question, Phil. That's the magic question. Nobody really knows. You know, people always say, look, but what is the line? Where is the line? Because if you think about it, say, for instance, say say you and me are in a relationship, right? I know it's painful for you to imagine, but we'll (laughs) imagine that. Sorry, Mrs. Phil. It's only hypothetical. And you finish with me. I mean, of course, I'd be really upset, wouldn't I? Right. And let's say that I phone you up three times on a Thursday and three times on a Friday crying and wanting to know why. I don't think many people would consider that stalking. They'd say that that's a bit harassing. You know, she's phoned him six times in two days. He clearly don't want to know. Well, that, that's a bit harassing. And then if I continued that behavior for a month and hung around outside your house accosting you and shouting at you and screaming at you and sending you letters and texting you then clearly I am a stalker but there's no definite line where one turns into the other you know I always say it's a bit like great art you know you don't really know how to define it but you tend to know it when you see it Mm. so I mean from a policing background we we were I think pretty poor at, at, at investigating or, or not so much investigating but defining it and of course the, in the UK the legislation certainly doesn't help that but certainly one of the things we looked at was 
when you know people have to start changing their behavior because of the harassment they're having that tends to sort of then that's when it kind of starts becoming stalking when their behavior has to change because of the harassment yeah that's a really good one and that is one that I've actually used myself without knowing that you did the same kind of thing but you know when Seekins people went I say look think about it are you how are you reacting are you changing your everyday habits do you feel kind of an overall sense of fear of being hunted and that can be quite difficult to define because they say, I don't know, I'm not really sure, I think so, or I'm trying not to feel afraid. But that one, your one, is beautiful because it's tangible, isn't it? So you can say to people, have you actually changed your behavior? Are you looking over your shoulder? Have you changed your routines? Have you blocked unknown numbers from your phone? If you've changed your behavior, I think that's a really, really good one, mm. definitely. And so so I, obviously I was fortunate, I, I did sort of fairly some sort of really good courses on on stalking and learnt a great deal about yeah. it you know mainly to, to be honest towards the end of my career um yeah. but i sort of didn't realize initially that there were different types of stalkers that, you know we we often hear the term stalking in the media and 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 uh, in other environments where it's it's kind of grouped together as one thing but that's not actually the case is it because stalkers are all very different Exactly. You know, and people have this idea as well in their heads, even now, you know, yeah, yeah. When, you know, you and me kind of started working in this area a couple of decades ago, you know, you said, you know, the police did a bad job. Everybody did a bad job everywhere in the world. You know, there just wasn't a shared language. There wasn't a lot of information. But even now, when there is a shared language for most people and a lot of information, people still have the same problems, don't they? And, oh, God, what was the question? I forgot. I've gone off on one. So, so, you know, in terms of... Oh, different types. Different types of stalkers. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? People often assume stalkers are this homogenous group. You know, some people think that they're this shadowy, strange figure at the other end of an alleyway or a computer keyboard, or some think it's solely the province of ex-partners. But as we now know, they're a hugely heterogeneous group so many differences different researchers and practitioners have come up with various different typologies but generally speaking we can say probably about a third maybe up to a half of cases involve an ex-partner right the rest will be a mix of strangers acquaintances but it's even more than that it's just not just your former relationship some people will be really quite seriously mentally ill. For example, I've worked on cases where the stalker actually believed that they were married to or had a relationship with somebody that they'd never met, or they may have had a relationship with them in another life, and they absolutely believed that, that, you know, in our previous incarnation, 500 years ago, we were married, so I'm going to stalk you until you remember. Other people will stalk for entirely different motivations. Some people are really like the Hollywood movies. Thankfully, they're rare in that they'll stalk because they just like playing with people. It's quarry and prey. It is sadism in many, many ways. And it's really, really difficult to sometimes to distinguish, particularly in the early stages 
of a stalking case, what the motivation actually is, because often they start very, very slowly. So we may be dealing with somebody who's quite socially incompetent, who wants a relationship with somebody, but they're pretty poor at, you know, trying to build and demonstrate an intent in a relationship. But on the other hand, we may have somebody that's highly sadistic, incredibly cruel, and intends to completely ruin the life of somebody just because they can. So, yeah, loads of different typologies, loads of different motivations. It's a really big group. And, and, and then presumably they, they pose different risks to different people depending on, on their typology. Absolutely. And it's really difficult for the non-specialists and often even for the specialists to find out which category a stalker may be longing. And also, you know, we've got some beautiful categories made by different researchers. We've all come up with our own different typologies, none of which are perfect. But it could be really difficult to slot people into those categories as well, because, you know, like with anything, categories are a guide. Mm. Yeah. So they give us a really, really good idea of what to expect in this case from particular types of stalkers and how we should manage or treat them. But people don't always fit neatly into categories. So we do need to always keep that in mind as well. The best category, in my opinion, and in most people's opinion, is the Mullen and Pathé one, their stalker typology. Mm-hmm. That is the chief, the boss. Yeah. And so if we if we kind of focus a little bit more on, on the areas that we deal with with Diffuse, which is you know, yeah. predominantly more to do with stalking around prominent people, public figures, um, even to the extent of, of figureheads in terms of business figureheads. So not not necessarily domestic relationships. No. Um, what, what's different about, about those type of stalkers? What we tend to see with people that target people of higher status, as you say, you know, your big brand figureheads, your public figures, your government representatives, we tend to see higher rates of mental disorder. You know, people often look at kind of, you know, your domestic stalkers and say, God, that person must be really, really crackpot. They must be so ill to, you know, spend so many months and years and basically ruin their life pursuing somebody. However, most stalkers, domestic stalkers, are not diagnosably mentally disordered. They may have substance abuse issues or a few personality issues, but maybe not even those. But your people that go after your public figures we see higher rates of mental disorder, sometimes quite extreme mental disorder. And although mental disorder and violence don't have a neat relationship, not anywhere in forensic psychology. In fact, people with mental disorder are more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators. Some people, nevertheless, who target public figures can be incredibly dangerous. And so, so what? What you know in terms of dangerous? If you are, do they do they ever just kind of give up and go away and think, "Oh, I'm bored of this now. I'm moving on." Hardly ever. They hardly ever just give up. The thing is, with stalkers, any stalkers, domestic, public figure, whatever, and it doesn't really matter about the motivation. What they have in common is they're persistent. And then you add in kind of standard human nature. If you put effort into something, you want something out of it, don't you? You know, 
say you put an effort into building up a business and you spent six years doing it, but it's still going nowhere. Most people still persist. We just do that, don't we? It's like, you know, the next big client's around the corner. I'm going to have me breakthrough. It's going to happen. And stalkers are no exception to that, but they are unusually persistent. They just will not give up and they won't go away. And the longer they do it, the more they put into it, they more want out, they want out of it, the less likely they are to disappear. And so how do you how do you um understand or acknowledge or recognize when things are escalating, when things are getting worse, when they're going from, shall we say, you know, stalking, cyber stalking to potentially becoming violent? Well, there's loads and loads of risk assessments out there. You know, risk assessment, violence risk assessment is a massive industry, multi, multi million dollar pound industry around the world. But a lot of people don't have access to those, do they? They don't have access to these kind of risk assessment forms and tests and tools and things. So I always say to people, trust your instincts. The human brain has been around for a long, 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 long time. And think back to, you know, the days when you know we were all at risk of snakes and woolly mammoths. Mind you, some of us still are. I live in Australia, you know, so I've still got all my senses up. You know, and just think back to those times. Those bits of your brain may be a bit more sleepy than they used to be you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, but they're still there. So I say to people, trust your instincts. Actually, as well, the studies showing that when you're targeted, particularly by persistent chronic criminals, such as a stalker or domestic violence offender, your instincts are really sharpened. And people just tend to know. They just tend to know, like, I can feel it. Something's going to happen. We really need to trust that instinct. As I say, you know, proper studies are showing that. However, Phil, in the whole world of public figures, they often don't know, do they? Because all these people, you know, they, they, they may be seen to represent something by the targeted, sorry, by the fixated person, by the stalker. But the recipient of these ideas, these behaviors, these motivations, they often don't know because their security don't tell them, the PA doesn't tell them, they get their email screened. So they can't trust their instincts. They just don't know. That's why they need people like you. So what, so what sort of warning signs then? If, you, if you're the PA or you're the, the security, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, what sort of warning signs are there? What are the red flags that we're looking for? It's a tricky, tricky business because sometimes the people that are going to be the most dangerous look on the face of it to just be really benign, just really, really gentle little missives and messages where other people, I'm going to cut your head off and you're the worst person known to humanity and you'll be dead by Friday and blah, 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 blah. They're often just venting. Mm. But some red flags do exist. And we always take direct threats seriously. Yeah, particularly from your ex-partner stalkers. You know, research with thousands of cases has found over the years that if an ex-partner stalker makes a really explicit, specific threat, the chances are they're going to do exactly what they're threatening to do. But other red flags can be a reappearance after a seeming hiatus. Why have they suddenly come back? And really big deals are stressors in the life of the fixated person or the stalker. 
and any indicator that they've got to the point whereby they've got nothing left to lose. And if they're blaming the person that they're stalking or fixated on, that's the biggest red flag of all. I've got nothing left to lose. It's all your fault. Because it's difficult to kind of comprehend in some ways that some of these folk, the more they stalk, the more cruel they are to their victims, the more they believe it's the actual victim's fault. Because they work it out in their heads and they're all like, well, you know, if this chief executive or my ex-girlfriend would just give in to me and give me what I wanted, everything would be fine. But they won't give in. They won't give me a million dollars to go away. They won't come back and live with me and be my partner forevermore. So the stalker actually believes that they're the one that has been controlled. Mm. They're the one that's suffering. And they're the one that, you know, if the victim just gave in to them, they'd be fine. They'd be they'd be free. And these people become incredibly dangerous because they feel so victimized, even though they're actually the offender. They can sometimes get to the point where they think, right, the only way I can stop this is to completely take them out of the picture. And sometimes when these people do actually act out fatally, they've described this beautiful relief straight afterwards. It's a release. I did it. I got all the stress and strain away. They're no longer controlling me. So, okay, so I mean, so when I, I mean, I can remember sort of some of the training I had was things like uh, if you're receiving emails and then you start getting phone calls and letters and what have you. So all of a sudden you get multiple forms of communication, for instance. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of went off the point a bit, didn't I? I went into talking to cataphonic rage. Um, <laughs> yes. So that that is great. Yeah. Broadening and out. Broadening out. The methods, exactly. That is a massive red flag. So, yeah, as you say, I was only getting emails, now I'm getting phone calls. And any approach, yeah. if they've not been approaching right from the beginning, but they're approaching, there they suddenly are. You know, it was all emails and phone calls. It was all kind of, you know, nasty old answer machine rants, but now they've been seen. Yeah, That's a massive one. But any kind of broadening, broadening out. So we've got end of tether type stuff, yeah. you know, total blame on the person that they're bothering and broadening, broad, I can't say broadening, broadening. to them, no broadening. idea why. <clears throat> broadening out their behaviours, you know, using different methods of harassment and stalking and also broadening out the targets as well so okay i've been going for the chief executive officer and she's not really giving me a lot of joy you know she's not answering me but i know where her mum lives and her mum's pretty old and her mum's got long covid and her mum's not doing very well because i read about that on facebook so you know i'm gonna harass her mum ha 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 that will get a rise out of the big boss so when they start to to move away from the kind of original target to, to other targets within yeah. the same cohort, if you like. Within um, the same cohort. Yeah. And they'll do that for a number of reasons. Two chief reasons being, number one, to really upset, you know, the t- main target. Mm. You know, imagine if you if your old mum was getting bothered mm. by a, by your stalker. You're not going to be, feel very good about that, are you? You're not going to be very happy. Mm. And... The other reason is to find out more information 
about the target because stalkers and fixated people can be so very, 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 very clever. And this is the thing, Phil. People think that, you know, they're kind of weirdos and they're just odd and they'd be able to spot them. And I've interviewed for research and um, also kind of working with the victims and survivors of stalking, thousands of victims and survivors. And over the past 25 years, one of the themes that always comes up is, oh, my gosh, Lorraine, I thought that I would absolutely be able to see a stalker coming. I absolutely believed that they would be weird in some way. They'd be odd. They'd be kind of like freaky people. They'd be these strange, socially isolated weirdos. Nope, not at all. They can be... Okay, I've seen stalkers, convicted stalkers that were doctors, that were lawyers, that were actually celebrities themselves. You know, from the lowest to the highest and everybody in between, anybody can be a stalker. And so, stalkers so, so could be the, so clever and so resourceful. So what's the advice then? If you, if you think you're being stalked, yeah, what do you do? What do you do? First of all, you keep records. Always, 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 always. Because if you don't keep records it's going to be even more difficult to convince people, people, you know, that, that are your friends and family and people, professionals that can help you. It will be harder to convince them that you're being targeted because it's so difficult to define stalking. It's so difficult to describe it. And for many people, you know, we don't want to admit that we're being stalked say oh it's just a bit of hassle they'll go away eventually or you know this is my kind of mum's neighbor's daughter's friend that's bothering me and I don't want to cause trouble and you know we can deny it to ourselves so if we keep a record though we can say gosh actually this is really really serious because research I did with the network for surviving stalking some years ago UK charity we asked a lot of people in depth about their experiences of stalking and we found that in the average case more than 100 incidents had occurred before people turned around to themselves and said yeah I am actually being stalked by which time the stalking is entrenched and the stalker's put a load in and wants to get a load out of it so keeping records is hugely important both to demonstrate to yourself what's going on and then you've got a log because it's so difficult to define stalking and agencies, professionals have such a hard time really trying to get their heads around what it is. So if you go with your log, boom. So always keep the evidence, keep everything you can. And even if it's really nasty, give it someone else to keep. And do you, you know, should you respond? If, if, they're, if they're contacting you, should you respond to their contact or should you just blank them? Such a tricky one because everybody's so different. I mean, in the old days when we first started to research stalking, the old days, but, you know, we are talking like 20 odd years ago. We always used to say, do not respond. Do not ever respond. Don't even think about responding. Just give a blank wall. But it's more subtle than that. So what we tend to advise these days, Phil, is under advice from an expert, if possible, we will work out whether there should be a response. So, for example, you see in ex-partner cases, if you've got a highly controlling ex-partner, particularly when we've seen domestic violence then evolve into stalking after the relationship ended, and that person is really used to keeping tabs 
on the person being targeted and then all of a sudden no response this can be really catastrophic to the offender mm. they can then be like you know no i absolutely have to know what he she is doing and i'm going to just barge in there and you know it's going to get very violent and nasty mm. catastrophic reaction so in some cases particularly domestic cases we can advise these days under expert advice some little yeah channels of response particularly in cases as well where you know people have shared a relationship and they've got kids together and sure. stuff you know yeah. sometimes you have to respond you haven't got a choice have you mm. but for corporate cases for example public figure cases we usually advise but not always do not respond unless you have to but then the world works against you doesn't it because if you've got things like complaints processes and your policy says we respond to all complaints in 14 days you have to respond and it's very very difficult actually i think it's impossible to offer general advice on how to respond <laughs> because they're so 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 different and everybody wants every stalker wants something different but what we can say generally is don't give away any information don't make any pro promises don't be overly kind don't be mean be logical my friend dr annabel chan in melbourne is very very wise and she came up with something very clever what she calls the persona of the kind robot yeah. so you as a robot you've been programmed to be kind but you have no feelings you have no cares you'd have no emotions you don't not get involved you are kind robot because the problem with these people some of them is you give them the tiniest 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 little bit of space and the door crashes open that's it and this is the thing with stalkers so you know if they send you an email right if they send 85 emails and you break and you respond on the 85th email what's the message you're giving dear stalker you have to email me 85 times to get me to answer so kind robot phil yeah that's the general advice but some stalkers are also very vexatious very querulous you know the kind of people you know we've all heard about them in the old days you know the 1980s they used to write all the letters in the local newspapers yeah. didn't they i remember seeing them all in the leicester mercury same names week after week carrying on about fences and councils and bees and whatnot and then you know some some of these people tended to graduate and still do and they clog up the courts you know they're the people that 1% of the people taking up 99% of the court time endless querulous complaints and on and on and on and you give them an inch and they take a mile mm -hmm. and they turn everything you know, like like conspiracy theories yeah, you know yeah. they're kind of related to them in some ways every little tiny thing is pulled apart taken apart and packaged back to you with bells on so you can't give information never any promises never any assurances never any information so let's move on then, because one of the services that we provide specifically yes. for the reasons that you just talked about is the profiling. Yeah. So so tell me, what is profiling? 
Profiling is when you get Lorraine and you show her a letter that somebody's wrote you and she tells you how old the person is, what they're wearing and what football team they support. <laughs> well, that, that's how we so did it on so the telly that's, a lot that, of the That was time. my next question. What isn't it? But that's, you just answered that one. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so what is it? You know, but, what is profiling? But that that's what you kind of t- you know, tend to believe on the telly. And, you know, to this day, you know, I often get young students, you know, when I, when I used to work at universities, I'd often get young students coming up like, I want to do profiling. And I'd say, okay, how good are you at statistics? Oh, I'm not going to do statistics. I'm just going to do profiling. How are you going to do that? Uh, I'm going to read about lots of different crimes and then I'll know what's what. So sadly, profiling is nothing like that exciting. What it is, is these days anyway, it's based on evidence. So, you know, all scientific fields of inquiry publish studies, don't they? That's how science moves on. You test hypotheses, you test ideas, you find out about stuff, you write it, you send it to academic journals, and, you know, people then review it and say if it's any good. And if you're lucky, you might eventually get all this stuff published. And so, luckily, you know, all around the world, for a number of years, people have been publishing lots of stuff in forensic psychology. So we know quite a lot about all different samples around the world of sometimes really, really niche particular offenders. And all as forensic psychology people, we share the unpublished stuff as well. So profiling is knowing an awful lot of research and also knowing where the gaps in the research are and knowing how to put it all together to find the type of people that just may be more likely than some other types of people to have done a certain thing. But there's not a big book you can look in. You have to read literally thousands and thousands and thousands of academic papers that are scattered to the four winds and the bottom of the ocean and the seven seas and whatever. And you have to know stats. So you have to be really quite decent at knowing how powerful all these statistical connections are. And then you need to know your psychology as well. So you need to know all about kind of different theories of personality and you need to know how they all work together and various mental disorders and how humans react in certain situations. And so when you put all that together, you tend, after many, many years, of kind of study and continued, you know, self-directed learning, you may have a decent idea of who is more likely than somebody else to do a particular bad thing. Because I mean, we've—I mean, you, you know—I've worked on a case recently, which obviously we're not going to disclose. But but the, oh. the feedback from the the profile that that you you produced when they've continued their behaviour. Was it was almost you know the 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 the, uh, the client was saying it was almost like it was a horoscope in terms of it was bang on this is exact you know what was predicted was exactly how they're behaving, but that's based on huge expertise and huge you know years and years of research and knowledge and and you know that's not a course you go on you know you do this and the reason that you know, obviously we we do this product and service and the reason why you do it for us, you know, as part of the business is because it's literally decades of expertise that allows you to, to look at all that literature around someone or the correspondence or the information around their social media, everything else that they might have. And from that, you can then give a, um, 
an outline or, or, or of what how that person may behave and what threats they may pose. I didn't know the client said that. You see, you never tell me nice things. You're telling the whole global population. I told you it beforehand. Oh, I don't remember <laughs> anything about that. Um, no, that's lovely. Yeah, it's exactly right. No, you are exactly right. So, you know, I think I was probably like, you know, a lot of the students that I still meet these days. I always thought that, oh, yeah, I'll go on a course, maybe like a master's course or do a PhD or something, and then I'll know all this stuff. I knew 0.0001 of it. So, yeah, it's just been years. Actually, I keep saying 25 years. It's 26. It's 2022 already, isn't it? 26 years of spending at least 25, 30, often a lot more hours a week reading this stuff, researching in the area myself, you know, creating the actual studies myself and getting them published in scientific journals and interviewing people and talking to both offenders, victims, and also witnesses for 25 years. Mm. And then that allows me to build up a mental map mm. of the kind of routes that people take. So when, do, so when would you advise people to have a profile done? When they've got somebody that just won't go away, you know, and people do try a few things, you know, in a perfect world, people would come to you straight away and will say, oh, you know, no, no, don't respond like that, because that will make the person come back and make them really angry and da, 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 da. But, you know, that's not what human nature is. Um, so if you've got somebody that just won't go away and or you just don't know who they are. So although I can't tell you, probably, you know, the home address and what football team they support, what I might be able to do is say whether this person is actually somebody you know, because often stalkers tend to be strangers and they are very, very not strangers. Or I may be able to tell you what they really, really want and whether you met them before or not and what they may be doing next and what we should or shouldn't be doing to impact what they're going to do next. You see, what it's all about in the modern age, the whole approach to risk assessment, violence and um, threat assessment these days, it's all about scenario planning. You know, like, you know, the, the kind of stuff when you, you, you think about all the generals years ago with a great big map, you know, working out. If we send a few troops down there and we plant a bomb down there, then this and that might happen. It's like that, you know, scenario planning. So we think about what the worst case scenario might be. This person's going to rock up, you know, with a gun at the headquarters in New York. Oh, that's going to be bad. And then we can work back from there. What can we do that would actually, you know, aid that happening? So therefore we ain't going to do it. And what could we do to stop that happening? And we can do it for really big scenarios, like somebody, you know, we think if this person continues this route, they may plant a large bomb or, you know, one-to-one -one scenarios as well. This person, you know, they've had an acrimonious breakup. If the person who then became a stalker sees his ex with a new boyfriend, he's going to act out violently. What are we going to do to stop us getting there? It's all about scenario planning. So if people think of a scenario in their head and they just think, I don't like this, this feels awkward, I don't like this person, I don't like what they're doing, and I've got it in my mind that this is going to get worse, that's another reason why you should then seek a profile if possible. Fabulous. 
So, okay, Lorraine, we're coming to the end of our um, inaugural podcast. Any, okay. Any uh, any other words of wisdom you want to share on on stalking and and uh, profiling on what we do? Um. Oh God, let me think a minute. Hang about. Hang about, governor. Hang about. Um. Don't know. Can't think of out. Okay. Because I've rattled on so long. You, I don't know what I'm on. on about. Yeah, that's fine. Is, is there anything you want me to say? No. No, it's absolutely brilliant. It's been brilliant. So before we uh, before we end, then I'm just going to sort of uh, tell people what's coming next, because our next uh, podcast in February is going to be with uh, Richard Levick, who is the chairman and CEO of Levick, a crisis communication and public affairs firm. Um, hugely, hugely influential. Uh, they've been involved in the Venezuelan crisis, Qatar, uh, the Gulf War, Guantanamo Bay. Catholic Church and many others. Um, Richard has, has been on a huge amount of times, but he's one of the 100 most influential people in the boardroom. Uh, so catch us for that one, because that's going to be really interesting. I've spoken to Richard a few times, um, and what he doesn't know about how to manage crisis is probably not worth knowing. So uh, so we'll look forward to that in February. Lorraine, thank you so much, as always. You. Uh, your own inimitable style, which is why we love you. Um, so uh, thank you for that. And... Um, We'll see you all very soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Online Bodyguard podcast with host Philip Grindel, CEO and founder of Diffuse. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platforms.